It's not really a Father's Day message, or maybe it is a Father's Day message in the sense that, dads, you need to be centered on God. You need to have a God-centered life as a dad. But you know what? It's not just dads. Moms, you need a God-centered life. Students, you need a God-centered life. Everybody in this room need to be thinking about how, what does it look like to have a God-centered life? Because it's not just going to church. Um, that's a big point. The point is a God-centered life. And so with that, we're going to be looking at Psalm 112. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Psalm 112, and we're going to actually dip back into Psalm 111. But a number of the Psalms, before we start, a number of the Psalms set forth a contrast between a righteous life and a wicked life. Psalm 1, for instance, blessed is the man who sits by the waters of, of God. And then at the end of it, it says, but it's not so for the ungodly. So you've got a godly and an ungodly contrast in the first Psalm. Psalm 112 is like that. And there's a major difference between a godly life and a wicked or an ungodly life. Both now in the present and especially in the age to come. There's two radical destinations. And if you heard this morning the first song we sang this morning, uh, Long Black Train, you want to know how that fits in this service? Because every one of us was on the Long Black Train that leads to a destination of the ungodly and the wicked. The long, and it's a long, and it's got tracks, and it's going down the tracks. A godly life is a change of destination, actually getting off that train and getting on a heaven-bound train, and it's the way of the godly. The psalmist understood the difference between the way of the wicked and the way of the godly. And on Father's Day this morning, we're going to paint the picture of what does it look like to live a God-centered life. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you this morning for everyone here. God, you've gathered us for the purpose, for the purpose of worship. There's no other place like this that we can gather as God's people to worship you openly and freely and praise your name. God, I pray that also we're here for the purpose of hearing, hearing you, hearing the Spirit of God speak to our hearts and maybe radically enlighten us to the fact that we really are on the wrong side of the tracks. God, show us where we're at. Show us how we can be pleasing in your sight. Apart from faith, we cannot you. And so God, strengthen our faith today. Give us a clear picture of what it is to have a God-centered life. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first of all, and I'll have the guys in the back uh, pull up Psalm 111, and we're going to start in Psalm 111, and I'm just going to read it because it sets the, the framework for Psalm 112. In Psalm 111, we have a picture of God. This is going to be verses about God. And then chapters 112, it's going to be a God-centered life. Reading in, in Psalm 111, verse 1. 
Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord for my whole heart, with my whole heart, in the company of the upright in the congregation. Here we go about God. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear Him. He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to His people. He has commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. And so with that in mind, that was a picture of God, and you saw a lot of things about who God is. He is faithful. He is righteous. His mercies endure forever. He is gracious. He is kind. He is giving. All these things in Psalm 111 are attributed to God. <coughs> Excuse me. But there is a transition verse between chapters 111 and 112. Did you catch it? A verse that links Psalm 111 to Psalm 112, and it is the 10th verse of Psalm 111. The 10th verse connects the two, and it was this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the God that was just described is the beginning of wisdom, and those who practice that will have a good understanding, His praise forever. Um, so let's dig into Psalm 112, and we're going to just go verse by verse through Psalm 112. I actually had the, I don't know what caused me to do this, but when, you're, when I was at seminary, I had an option for some electives, some elective classes to take that they weren't required. Now, what was required is you take some electives. I elected to take a, a semester of the Psalms. Now, maybe I remembered how many chapters are in Psalms. Maybe I didn't. But I wanted to take an elective semester on Psalms. First of all, because I knew it was rich. I knew the Psalms were going to be incredibly encouraging. And so I took that, and I did not realize what the assignment was going to be. One of the assignments within the semester was to not only go and listen to the lectures and take the tests and all of that from the professor, but somehow through that whole semester, I was supposed to read the entire book of Psalms, including Psalm 119, and you know what I'm talking about. Not only read it, I was asked to journal my own thoughts on every chapter of Psalms. I needed to write basically my own commentary on the Psalms, every one of them, as a, an assignment. And Beth remembers what we did in this little seminary apartment. I said, hey, honey, uh, I need your help with this. And she said, okay, what do I need to do? 
You just need to read out loud the Psalms. And while you're reading, I'm going to jot down my thoughts. And so we began to read through the Psalms. And uh, it was a great exercise. And I would encourage you to do that. Read the Psalms and then write down what God is really saying. Well, that's basically what I'm going to do right now this morning because I'm just going to take Psalm 112 and we're going to unpack verse by verse what it means to live a God-centered life. Here we go. Verse 1, praise the Lord. I'm going to stop right there. I don't know if you read your Bible too fast. I do. And if I did it too fast, I'd say, praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears. Hey, stop right there. First of all, praise the Lord. That's what a God-centered life looks like. It looks like a person that knows how to praise the Lord. And so guys, today on Father's Day, when's the last time you actually praised the Lord? Praise Him. Praise Him in all of His majesty. Praise Him out loud. When's the last time you led your family and just said, you know what, guys, I just want to praise God for you, my family. I just want to praise God. Praise the Lord. It is a quality of a God-centered life. Let's keep going in verse 1. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Why do you praise him? Because you fear him. (laughs) Uh, We praise him because we have an awe of God. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord. Now, this is not just simply a fear, frightful thing of his power. It's also the awe of God, the respect of God. And so a God-centered life is not a life that just says, oh yeah, me and God, we've just got this personal relationship that's so tight like we're buddies. No, a God-centered life says, he is God and I am not. And a God-centered life has a fear of God, an awe of God. When's the last time, guys, that we had a praise of God, but then we also had that understanding that he is so big, he is so amazing. Vacation Bible School just blew our minds of how big, how big, our God is, how powerful He is. Well, also in verse 1, it goes on to say, praise the Lord, blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in His commandments. Who greatly delights in His commandments. Why would we delight in the law of God? Why would we delight ourselves in the commands of God? Can you really find joy in God's commands? Now, this is, a, this is a good question for you. If you're a God-centered person, then you understand God's ways are best. And you understand that by obeying God, you're going to find your greatest joy. I guarantee you, your greatest joy is not disobeying God. Your greatest joy is going to be in obedience to God. And so therefore, when you do that, and a God-centered life understands that you can praise God for His commands. And delight, the word delight is to take great satisfaction in God's commands. And um, so with that, His purposes are great. The glory of God is is at at stake. You want to glorify Him. Verse 2, let's let's move to verse 2. How then should we live? There's a difference between verse 1 and and verse 2. One is what a God-centered life does. Verses 2 to 9 are what is the fruit of a God-centered life? What if 
you praise God, you fear the Lord, and you delight in His commands. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, that's enough to work on right there. We should all go home and just do that. Just learn to praise God, fear Him, and delight in His commands. And when you do that, verses 2 through 9 begin to unfold. Verses 2 through 9. Let's look at what that is. Verse 2 says, His offspring, that's the man who is praising God, fear Him, and obeys Him, His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generations of the upright will be blessed. Well, what does that mean? It means that this kind of a God-centered man has influence in his home. Influence in his home. And the generations to come. I put it this way. What this means is that by his, listen to this, by his reverence for God and the joy of the Lord, others around him are impacted, including his kids, including his family, and could we say including the next generation. So if you're a dad today, you have an opportunity to influence your kids. And if you are a grandpa today, you have the opportunity to influence generations. And it says right here that your influence will be great if you praise God, fear Him, and delight in His commands. What kind of an influence does this mean? Does this mean that this kind of a man is perfect? This is not a message about being a perfect man. This is not, a, and, and all, all the guys ought to say amen to that. This is not about living a perfect life. There's only been one. This is about a God-centered life, and when you live a God-centered life, in your failures, even in your failures, your influence is great because you recognize God in your life, and you're authentic. Guys, if there's anything I would say this morning to all of us would be to own it and to realize that we walk in feet of clay and that we are capable of misstepping. But God is great. Look at verse 3. Not only will you have influence with the generations in your children. Verse 3 says, Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Wealth and riches are in his house, his righteousness endures forever. This is not a promise of prosperity, so to speak. This is not a promise of, of uh, health, wealth, and wisdom. That's a false gospel. What it is promising, though, is security and hope secured. This is a promise that the quality that we see in this is just like Psalm 111 verse 3 that talks about God. God is rich. He's rich in mercy. He's rich in His grace. He's rich in His power. God is rich. And so a God-centered man is also rich. It says in riches and wealth, And I would take it this way, like Paul said in 1 Timothy 6.6, that godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to know what a rich man is? A rich man, according to Paul, is one who has godliness and contentment with whatever he has. And he says that is great gain. Godliness 
Contentment, great gain. We must pursue God, not riches. God is the one you must pursue. However, oftentimes God does bless. Oftentimes God does bless with riches and wealth and blessings. By the way, guys, you know, realize this as Americans, we are completely blessed beyond what we deserve, as Dave Ramsey would say. How are you? Better than I deserve. We are blessed. God blesses you. Maybe he blesses you with wealth. And you know what a God-centered person does with that? All blessings go back to God. A God-centered person would say, not look how rich I am, look how great God is. And so even in verse 3, wealth and riches are in his house, but it's his righteousness that endures forever. It's the fact that he understands where it comes from. Look at verse 4. Continuing on, what's the blessings to a God-centered life? Verse 4 says, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. Let's look at the first part of verse 4. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. God's light is reflected in a man who fears him. And you've seen this illustration before, and it fits with our vacation Bible school that we just came out of. The moon has no light of its own. You all know this. So when you see a full moon, and it's bright, and you can even have a moon shadow. A moon shadow is a shadow, looks like, from the light of the moon. But there is no light in a moon of itself. The moon only reflects the light of the sun. Therefore, the moon shadow is simply a shadow of the reflected light of the sun. And it is with the God-centered man. A God-centered person has no, light, has no light within himself unless it's the light of God. And if it's the light of God, then we have the light that shines in the darkness. And we see that in verse 4, light dawns in the darkness for the upright. And so there is a light that shines in a God-centered life. And look at verse 4 at the end of verse 4. When it says, He is gracious, merciful, and righteous, do you realize that's the same as chapter 11, verse 4? Look at it. Look at chapter 11, verse 4. It says that He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. But chapter 111 is talking about God. Chapter 112 is talking about a godly person. So what gives? Is it God who's this or is it the person that's this? It is God who is this who works within you to make you become like Him. And so if you are gracious and merciful and righteous, it is because of God. Chapter 111 says God holds these characters, characteristics, these qualities, and then He puts them in you. He puts that in you and so that a God-centered life reflects the light of God through His gracious, merciful, and righteous living. Again, this is not a message about a perfect life. Um, you don't need to hear. Guys, you know, we don't, all of us, we do not need to hear somebody up here on the pulpit talk about a Christian is a person that does everything perfectly. I'm out. Are you? If you're here today and you've ever failed, you're in the right place. If you're here and you've ever made a promise to God and then you broke it, you're in the right place. 
But if you're also here hungry to have a God-centered life, you're in the right place. Because this psalm right here is telling you, if you would put the priority on God, and if you would take a look at Psalm 111 and then practice Psalm 112, you're on your way to seeing God work in you like you've never known. Let's keep going. Verse 5. It says in verse 5, It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. It is well with the man who deals generously. He is generous. Well, does that mean he's just handing out stuff? He's he's just saying, hey, I'm a a handyman. I'm going to go and help everybody I can. I'm just going to wear myself out helping. Is that what he means? Or does he mean he's a man who's not greedy? He's not greedy with his time. He's not greedy with his possessions. And yes, he's going to help people here, but the point is he has a heart that's not full of greed. It's not all about you. A God-centered person is a person that is generous, always has the time to listen, to help. So he is generous. And then it says that he deals generously and lends a helping hand. Maybe it's to help out. Yes, that's part of it. And who conducts his affairs with justice. Do you see this? He deals justly, fairly. He's not trying to rip anybody off. He's not trying to make himself look better than everybody else. He's just fair. And if you've ever met a God-centered person, you trust them. You trust them. Verse 6. What about verse 6? For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. Verse 6 and 7 go together. Let's just take a look. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered. We find a solid confidence and assurance in verse 6. The righteous will never be moved. What does that mean? What it means is, I'm never going to give up. My answer is Jesus. The question, it it doesn't matter what the question is, my answer is Jesus. He is everything to me. My whole life is staked on the claims of Christ. Paul would say this, if Christ had not been raised, then what we are doing here is in vain. A righteous, God-centered life cannot be moved. You are convinced of God. Again, it's not talking about living perfectly, but it is talking about you are convinced. You're not playing around with God. You've given Jesus everything. Your eternal life hinges on your faith in Jesus. And that's all you've got. When it comes down to it, we are saved by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. That's all you, you cannot say, well, I also have a good job and I got a lot of money in the bank. You cannot trust that. Well, I'm really healthy right now. I've never been to the hospital. I've never had a surgery. Yet. You can't trust your health. You can't trust your wealth. So what are you trusting in? A God-centered one cannot be moved from what they're trusting in. I trust in Jesus Christ. My faith is in the solid rock. And so it says here in verse 6, a God-centered life is one 
who will not be moved. And you'll probably have people around you to say, oh, you're not one of those Christians, are you? Surely you're not, surely you're going to outgrow that. Surely you're going to give up the crutch of Christ. You know what? If we give up the crutch of Christ, we fall to ultimate damnation. We must, we must hold to Christ. God-centered man knows this. He will, not, he will be remembered forever. In other words, again, your, your influence, if you will not be moved from your convictions, it says you will be remembered. You know what you'll be remembered for? Holding your convictions. Holding your convictions. And so it says you'll be remembered. We'll talk in a minute, we'll talk in a second at the end about what do the wicked think of the God-centered life. And it has something to do, your work, you will be remembered. And by the wicked, you will be remembered for your faithfulness to God. Verse 7. This is a very interesting verse. And, and God, by the way, guys, this is just walking through one chapter in your Bible. All I'm doing is reading a verse and giving an attempt to say, what does this mean? Verse 7 says, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Well, look at verse 7, that first part. He is not afraid of bad news. You know what this says to me? A God-centered life is going to have bad news. A God-centered life is not immune to horrendous, horrible days. A God-centered life is going to get hit with bad news. You're fired. We don't need you anymore. A God-centered life could be hearing words like, you have cancer. A God-centered life can have the bad news of saying, I'm going to leave you. I don't love you anymore. God-centered life is not immune to bad news. The Christian life is not a cocoon life. It's not a bubble life. It's not a bubble life. This feels like a bubble right here. It's the only bubble we have, and that is we can come and worship together. And guess what? This bubble could be burst. One Supreme Court rule, one rule. Boom, we can't meet like this. So we don't live a bubble life. We're not immune to bad news. So guys, everybody here, when you receive bad news... How do you react to that? A God-centered life, it says, is not afraid of bad news. I will not forget the time I took the phone call of my mom who said my grandma is gone. Now, she lived a long life. It was her time. I understand that. But I love my grandma. Granny is what I call her. I love my granny. And I took that call, and it was, it was hard. Some of you have had far more, a lot more difficult things. Uh, that was one, um, news of, of different things happening in life. Car wrecks. Tragedies. You dread hearing the, the, the doctors coming 
and telling you what we're going to do. It was great to see Deborah Umstead here earlier. Uh, she, she had the news of hearing you, you're going to have a quadruple bypass. Uh, and coming into that, it was pretty scary. See, the Christian life is not immune to bad news. You don't have as much money in the bank as you thought. The stock market just tanked. Half your retirement is gone. We've all had that bad news. 2008. So what do you do with bad news? God-centered life's not afraid. Well, I'm not based on good news and bad news. My whole life is not on whether it's a good day or a bad day. My life is built on Jesus Christ, who's always on a good, solid place. And so nothing can shake us. That doesn't mean we don't, we don't care. It just means that we have confidence. I think it's very interesting that verse 7 says, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. Now, let me, let me say this. Sometimes this is misunderstood. A God-centered life, can you believe it, that somebody could judge you? Somebody could misunderstand you? Here's how it works. It happened to me. I'm in the hospital with a, with a family member, my own family, and... I was confident in God. I didn't know how it was going to work out. But I didn't have all the emotions. And I said, there's nothing wrong with emotions. If you, if you cry, that's great. That's not a problem. I cry too. We all cry. That's not the point. The point is not the emotion. But the, the point is the confidence. I had confidence that God was going to work out one way or the other. God be praised. And you know what that was misunderstood as? You don't care. Can your confidence in God look like you don't care? The disciples got on to Jesus. He was asleep in the boat. He was confident they're going to make it. But the disciples said, wake up, don't you care? And Jesus said, yes, I do. In fact, I care enough to show you who I am. Calm the, we calm the waves, calm the storm, tell the disciples you have little faith. So, it says here in verse 7, you're not afraid of bad news, your heart is firm, and you trust the Lord. That's how you make it through the hard times. You persevere, trust the Lord. Look at verse 8. His heart is steady, he will not be afraid, until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. His heart is steady, he will not be afraid, until he looks in, the, in triumph over his enemies. He knows that there will be a day. There's going to be a day that we win, that, that we will triumph, that God will not disappoint us. Now, some of you have been, maybe you're wondering if, if it's worth it. Is it really worth it to be a follower of Jesus Christ in the year 2017? What's the answer to that? Yes, it's worth it. Why do we know that? Both now and the days to come, it is worth it. And guys... There is going to be a day, and you're going to know that it is totally worth it. It is totally worth it. To see Jesus Christ high and lifted up on his throne, are you kidding me? To see the Savior, to see him, that is going to be totally worth it, just to be in his presence. 
to know that we are safe and saved completely. And we will triumph, it says, we will triumph over our adversaries. There's not a fire too hot that we will not triumph over as believers. Even if they burn us at the stake of which they did and have and will, we triumph over our adversaries in Christ Jesus. Verse 9, it says, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. Again, this one sounds just like God. He has distributed freely. It sounds like the, that God has given His grace, God has given His mercy freely. And so the God-centered person also distributes freely. He has given to the poor not only physical needs, not only physical needs to help people in their needs, but also given to the poor of heart, the poor of spirit. What about the downtrodden? What about the discouraged? What about those that are having a bad day? It's a God-centered life that I will pray for you. And I'm doing it right now. I'm going to pray for you. Nothing thrills me more than somebody to come up to me when they know that I am down. Like I told Beth this morning, would you pray for me? And you know what? Not only did she say yes, it's just while we were walking early this morning, she actually prayed for me out loud to God and to me. I heard her prayers, and it made a difference. Guys, it makes a difference when we give to the poor. Physical, spiritual, emotional, financially. All of those giving to the poor. God is like that. And the God-centered person is like that. Look at it. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. And it says, His righteousness endures forever. Now, do not read it wrong. He does not have any righteousness of his own. But the righteousness that he has endures forever. The righteousness that he has is found in Psalm 111. God is righteous. His righteousness endures forever. A God-centered person has had his righteousness given to him, God's righteousness given to him in Christ Jesus by faith. And therefore, the righteousness that is not our own will endure forever. And then it says in the end of verse 9, the end of 9, it says, His horn is exalted in honor. Now, what is a horn? Well, in Bible language, the horn is a source of power. The horn of the altar, it's a source of strength. His strength is exalted in honor. And we know this in the New Testament when Jesus said, I will humble those that are exalted. I will humble the proud, but I will exalt the humble. Your power is not in your pride. Your power is in your humility. That is a God-centered life. It's not powerful in the sense that I know more than you, blah, blah, blah. I'm better than you. Blah. That is not a God-centered life. A God-centered life's power is not in their pride. A God-centered life's power is in their humility. And in their humility, God says, 
That's power. The, his horn is exalted in honor. And we know God does not exalt pride. He only exalts the humble. So have humble confidence in God. So there you have almost all of Psalm 112. Verses 1 is what a God-centered life is. Verses 2 through 9 is what a God-centered life produces. And then the psalmist does something for us in in verse 10. He does something for us that I'm so glad he does. He makes a contrast between a God-centered life and the wicked life. A God-centered and a man-centered, a God and an anti-God life. Look at verse 10. It says, the wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desires of the wicked will perish. The wicked man sees it and is angry. Why is the wicked angry at the godly? And by the way, I'm not sure that that happens in this life. Sometimes it does. But I guarantee you it will in the life to come. Where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see that? You see that in verse 10. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the time I read that in the New Testament, that's in hell itself where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. But I think sometimes it happens even in this life, and that is you live a godly life. You praise God. You have a sense of hope, a sense of faith, a sense of confidence in somebody that's in shaky ground in the wicked world. They have no confidence. They don't know. Their only confidence is in themselves. And it looks like you've got something that they don't. And instead of coming to you, so that you could share Christ, they reject you. And they become angry. And they become mean-spirited. That's what it says in verse 10. The wicked man sees a God-centered life and they become angry (coughs) and jealous. I wrote that this is not likely to be not always now, but it will be because... Not everybody's coming to know Christ, right? Not everyone on the end is saved. Contrary to what you read, love does not win in terms of everyone is saved. Everyone is rescued from hell. You would think that people, when it says that every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, Jesus Christ is Lord. You know that. There will be a day that every knee will bow. Those of us in Christ, we bow in faith and honor and praise. The ungodly will bow against their will. They will bow because they will acknowledge God, but they don't want to. They've never wanted to. And it says here in the Psalms, that even the wicked will see God and be angry. There's weeping and gnashing of teeth because they cannot accept God in any way. Plus the sadness of their state. Well, 
The promise here is that the way of the wicked will not stand. Look at verse 10, the end of it. The desires of the wicked will perish. And that's the hope of the godly. The godly know that we have eternal life. We have things that will last forever. Your righteousness will endure forever by God's grace. But it says the ways of the wicked will perish. The Hitlers, the Stalins, the, the, the tyrant, the, the absolute dictators, the torturers, those that mistreat us, Nero, all of these wicked things that have happened in this world and will get worse, the ways of the wicked will perish. The desires, we're going to get rid of the Bible. Oh yeah? The ways of the wicked, my word will endure forever is what God says. The ways of the wicked, the desires that they want, will not succeed. I I think maybe we need to tell ourselves this. Somehow we're convinced the ways of the wicked are going to be successful. That's why I feel so small in this world. Well, you are maybe small in this world, but the ways of the wicked will perish and the ways of the godly, the, the righteousness of God will be forever. We win. God's ways are best. And so don't think for a second that the ways of the wicked are somehow going to overcome God. No, it's really the other way around. God will say how it ends. Well, there you have it. A God-centered man, he will forever be blessed and enjoy everlasting life. How do I know this? John 3.16, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, the God-centered person, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So let's, let's summarize in concluding these things that are in your bulletin. So what is it, everyone? What is your greatest joy? What is your greatest joy? And that's not a trick question. That's just an honest question. Because in Psalm 112, that person's greatest joy is God and His Word, His commands. So what is your greatest joy and what is your heart's desire? I read a book by Kyle Eidelman. Many of you know Kyle Eidelman wrote the book, um, Not a Fan. I'm not a fan of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus. He also wrote a book, God's at War. And in the book, God's at War, I I knew it was about idolatry. And I thought, okay, I'm going to read this about idolatry because I don't want to be an idolater. I don't want to have any idols. And lo and behold, one chapter in that book, the idol was family. That we idolize our families. And here on Father's Day, I'm for families. I love family. I love my wife, and I love my three boys, and we're going on a vacation this week. I can't wait. But if it's between family and God, I know my family, boys are in the back here, I know they're looking at me going, Dad, I want you to love God more than us. I'd rather you love God supreme. We can idolize, we can put it the other way around. Well, I love family, and then I tuck God in there somewhere. 
Guys, be careful that we don't put our families even as our idol. What is your joy? Where is your heart? Do you fear the Lord? Here's the next question just to reflect. Do you fear the Lord? Because there's a lot of people, I mean, God would come and say, have you no fear? You do whatever you want. You don't even pray. You never read your Bible. You, don't, you have no res- In fact, they say, the atheists say that Christians are actually, many Christians are, are simply practicing atheists when we leave here. In other words, we talk about God here, but we live like an atheist. We never pray. We never, we just come back from Sunday to Sunday. Don't live like that. The godly-centered life, not a perfect life, but a life that puts God first. Do you fear the Lord? How has He transformed you? And I would think that a church this size, we could have a, a row, a parade of people here that could simply come and share testimony of, this is what God has done for me. This is how God has transformed me. A God-centered life give, gives praise to God in what He's doing. How has He transformed you? And then finally, do you delight in His Word? Or, or finally, are you angry? Are you jealous? Are you resentful? I wish God wouldn't make us do that. I wish He wouldn't made a, give us a book we have to read. I, I wish He wouldn't have done that. I don't like praying. I don't like going to church. Can we just get out early? That's even better. Can we get, quit listening to this stuff? And that's not your heart. I hope it's not your heart. And yes, we are going to get out early. Hey, I see smile. I smiles everywhere. But the point is that you're not jealous of godly people. Do you look at people that are really growing? Are you glad? A church here that reaches people for Christ, are you glad? Or, or if things change here, are you saying, don't change my church? Or are you glad to see what God is doing? If we preach right out of this book and there's not a lot of jokes and there's not a lot of what about the Cardinals? What about sports? What about this stuff? What about electronics? Let's talk about computers. Why don't we talk about Jesus? And you ought to be all right with that if you're a God-centered person. But if that doesn't go well with you and you're angry about the fact that we are God-centered, gospel-centered, Bible-centered, Be careful with your heart because it says the wicked were angry. They were jealous. They were resentful. They didn't like it, what God was doing. Well, question, are you God-centered? Let's pray. Father God, I just pray right now that your word, Psalm 112, would be a way for us to look in the mirror. Can we find ourselves in Psalm 112. Can we even say the first verse? Praise the Lord. God, help us to be God-centered, not perfect. If there's anyone here that's trying to be perfect, may they stop and let you be the perfect God. God, show us where we need to change. Show us where we need to be transformed. Show us where we're doing it right. Show us where we're doing it wrong. Transform us. And as we go, may we have confidence when bad news comes that we would not be shaken, that we would stand our ground. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. We're going to be singing a song of, of reflection and response. It's a time to pray and say, God, I want to be God-centered, whatever that means.